Hey, welcome to the Viscast, everybody. Sorry we're a day late on this one. I just got behind on some things. You know, life stuff. This episode focuses on something I mentioned at the end of the last episode, which was the idea of whiteness. I was getting it from Willie Jennings' book called After Whiteness. And so we wanted to dedicate this episode to a conversation about the conceptual issues around whiteness. What is it? What is its ideals? And then also the practical implications of it for humanity, for the world, for Christianity, politics. So hope you find it useful. So when I started at the University of Chicago, it was a big step for me intellectually. And before I had any um, classes, I was asked to read, it was either the introduction or the first chapter, I'm not sure what it was, of a book by Michel Foucault called The Order of Things. I didn't know who Foucault was at the time. I'd never heard of him, but it seemed a reasonable enough task. It wasn't very long. I mean, it maybe was 20, 30 pages, maybe longer. I don't know. I, I remember feeling like it wasn't a lot to ask. So I started reading it, and I could not understand it for the life of me. And I hadn't had many, if maybe any, experiences of this prior to going to Chicago where I was asked to read something and found myself basically incapable of understanding it. It was uh, pretty jarring because I hadn't even started yet. I knew I was starting in on a program that was a step up from anything I had done, but I didn't really know how much so. And this wasn't in my field of study that I had come there to do it was because this program required you to get some breadth of knowledge in the study of religion so this was a course called uh, I believe it was religion and the human sciences and the order of things was by Michel Foucault as I said who's a philosopher I guess is probably the best word to give to him but a really really unique thinker and I still don't know his work really well, but I now know of him and what his work uh, is about. And I know he was a really unique um, thinker in essentially postmodernism. He's French. And what the chapter I was being asked to read was doing to some degree, and I still don't understand it entirely, but he was using a painting... As a, and he was reflecting on this painting, but there wasn't a picture of the painting. And initially, I didn't even know he was talking about a painting the first time I read it. I didn't even know. I didn't know what was going on at all. I was really, really lost. And it was, you know, the internet was around. So this is 19, no, this is 2003. But we went, we didn't have really, really fast internet. And you couldn't, you couldn't do what you can now, which is... Uh, you know, get somebody to give you a short introduction to the book or 
an explanation of certain parts of the book, which is what you can do now. I didn't have that luxury then, or, or it wasn't on my radar screen to even try it. But what's funny about it is that I came to have some understanding of what the book was about through help from the professors and and further sort of looking into it. But I, I would come back to the, the idea of the book or what I thought the main ideas of this book were have come back to me now and again, even though I don't even fully understand them yet. And I've been thinking about them recently. And what the book is about, essentially, is that every age and we you know we break these up somewhat artificially but that every age has a system of thinking that is somewhat unconscious to us that we are sort of captured by and it becomes almost impossible to think outside of that system of knowledge mm. but there are times when those systems shift somewhat dramatically those systems of thinking and so we would think of them, or the popular way to say that would be um, paradigm shifts, right? He's actually speaking of something even more dramatic than that, because a paradigm shift is to say, we have this paradigm, here are some other paradigms on offer, and then maybe over time, culture or a specific discipline shifts to a different paradigm. But he's speaking about something beneath that, which is what is it in the knowledge structure of a certain time period you live in that orders what you can even imagine thinking about? So uh, perhaps an example would be, we know that the authors of Genesis 1 through 3 knew nothing of the fact that we lived on a planet within a solar system within a galaxy it was absolutely inconceivable that they could think of earth the place they inhabited and how it might have been formed in that way and then eventually you know with the copernican rev revolution right i think copernicus was the first one to say the earth actually revolves around the sun and it was actually dangerous for him to say that right but eventually we got to the point of realizing what this place actually was but it was impossible to them before and he calls these um ways of thinking um episteme it's from a word you might know related to this is like epistemology. So epistemology is the study of knowledge, sort of the study of how we think or how we come to certain ways of knowledge. And um, I have a sort of definition here that I got off the Internet, and I, I've looked around, and this seems to be one that um, I think is somewhat understandable. So it's the episteme is the condition of possibility of discourse in a given period. It is an a priori set of rules. A priori is not from experience. A priori set of rules of formation that allow discourses to function, that allow different objects and different themes to be spoken at one time, but not another. I think the main thing is the condition of possibility of discourse in a given period. 
is what I was trying to get at. That's just a more concise way of saying it. And I guess what I've been thinking recently is that I think we might actually be undergoing one of these changes that he was trying to describe in his book, The Order of Things. I don't know if it's going to end up being as dramatic as some of these earlier revolutions, either in science or in humans, you know, so let's say uh, investigative sciences or maybe in human sciences, right? Um, But it feels like we're undergoing a shift that is like this. And it's interesting because my confusion in trying to understand Foucault has now shifted to having a moderate understanding of Foucault and using his idea of episteme, of changes in what is possible to think as true, that shift from not understanding him to understanding him a little bit is now the thing I'm using to try and understand what I think might be happening (laughs) currently, which is that we're undergoing... At a minimum, we're undergoing some major paradigm shifts. Yeah. But I think we might be going undergoing something that, that Foucault would actually identify as a change in episteme. And I mean that around sexuality, gender, race, I think even economics. I think we're looking at capitalism, at least some people, more people than... than there were perhaps 10, 20, 30 years ago. And we're wondering, is this really getting us what we want for the world? What's it doing to the environment? What's it doing to, um, to people? Institutions. Yeah. What's it doing to institutions like educational institutions? What's it doing to religious institutions? What's it doing to countries? That's been something that's just been going through my head that I wanted to say from the start as a way of trying to frame the confusion I feel around the time we live in and that maybe the confusion is warranted because the ground beneath us is falling away and needs to be replaced by something else but we don't know what that thing is going to be yet because we're in the midst of it all. And that's the hardest thing. I mean, it's hard enough to look back on history and try and sort out the movements of history. It's even harder to live through changes in history and have some sort of clear-eyed explanation of what's happening. So I say all that as an introduction to what we mentioned, what I mentioned last week was this book, I'm still not finished reading. I'm halfway through it called After Whiteness um, by Willie Jennings. And it's one of it's one of those things that's put into words things for me that I, I think are true and then also meaning therefore that there are significant things that need to change. That I'm that I'm going to try and articulate for people and for myself, and then push for these changes to be implemented. But 
it feels like one of those things that's so inchoate is the best word I can come up with, but that's a weird word. They're so just a thing that's starting to be articulated and to come into being. And I know it's going to take a while to get any traction amongst the general population that I know we're a long ways from adopting it if we even are capable of it. Because these kinds of substantive changes, I mean, just think of the things I listed earlier. These are foundational things to understanding the human condition, gender, sexuality, race, um, economics, right? Well, and we like, and you know, we like comfort and we like certainty. And we're willing to sacrifice curiosity and we're willing to sacrifice the what we might consider the common good if uh, we're willing to sacrifice those things in order to feel secure. And so we fight against any kind of transformational change that's happening, and that's what I see. But I'm, I'm actually quite excited about it, and I, I hope I can live a while longer to stay in this dialogue because I find it liberating and challenging and creative and even fun to be able to talk with you or anybody about these things without fear, without like, hey, um, I'm worried that, you know, if I push this too far, I'm going to be excluded. I'm going to be driven out. I'm going to be marginalized because that's what happened like to Jimmy Carter as an example of one who pushed and pushed and pushed around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And what they did then is just marginalized him. Yeah, they did. When he did peace or apartheid yep. during the Bush years, Bush the second Bush, they did marginalize him. Well, now he looks prophetic. That's does. good news for him, obviously. Now apartheid is a word people are increasingly using around that situation. Um, ourselves included uh, this morning i was thinking about the fact that both sides of the political spectrum have rightfully identified the truth of the matter which is that this sort of i'm just going to use the word paradigm shift because it's a more known phrase that it is upon us but what are we going to do so make America great again is say deny all these issues that are being brought to the surface and go back to the earlier consensus, which is, and this is where Willie Jennings' book comes into play, you know, it, the, the main image that he has is of the white self-sufficient man and his self-sufficiency is defined by possession, control, and mastery. Right. And that's what Make America Great Again wants. Yeah. Keep that as the dominant image of what it means to be a successful human being. The white, self-sufficient man his self-sufficiency defined by possession, control, and mastery. That's, that's the image they want 
forward that everybody should be agreeing is the image of success and the image of progress and tradition and goodness. So whiteness is can be sought. That image can be sought by anyone. It's not about race anymore. It's about a, an image of power that becomes normative. And then everybody agrees upon it. And for a long time, I think this was true or is forced to agree to it, right? I would say, you might recall, and I don't think we're in, I don't hear as much of this anymore, but there was a time in which African-Americans would say, you have to sort of, and I still think this is true for them, you have to become sort of a PhD in white culture to succeed in the United States. You cannot be fully black and have success in the United States. Barack Obama could become the first black president because he, frankly, was this image. Even though he was black, he still had this image of self-sufficiency. And he was a very controlled person. If you think about it, I mean, sometimes he was criticized for it. So there was a time, and I think we're still in it, in which a person of any race or stature or gender or sexual identity knows that that image is the one most apt to give you success, trying to achieve the self-sufficiency of the white male whose goals are possession, mastery, and control. So that's it. So he calls it after whiteness because he thinks it's it's best defined as whiteness, but nobody should think it is only constrained to white skin color. It's not about white skin color or white or even white male anymore. Cor- correct. I mean, because one of the um, uh, things I'm most proud of in in my ministry life is working hard to include women in our church life, um, being part of uh, hiring the first woman pastor in uh, the particular area of my denomination when I was when I was in Portage, mm-hmm. and following through with that at, at Beachwood and working hard to have women leadership. But here's what women would tell me over and over again. It's fine, Marlon, that you hired me. It's fine that you worked hard to allow me to be an elder or even vice president of consistory or whatever. But in order for me to achieve in this role that you gave me, I still cannot be fully a woman. I have to figure out how to be a man or how to manipulate, how to, mm-hmm. um, how to maneuver. That's right. In a man's world, I can't be fully a woman. I can't be the I can't bring to the table those attributes that make me who I am, a woman. I have to figure out how to be a basically what you're saying. Yeah. I have to figure out how to to, to this whiteness I have right. to figure out. This toxic masculinity, yeah. right, that we have. That's right. Such yeah. that we still think of certain qualities as feminine and other qualities as masculine. 
And of course that dichotomy is false and is not doing us any favors, any of us, um, women or men. But the only way to frame what these women were trying to say is to say like, well, feminine qualities weren't welcome at consistory meetings. Right. Vulnerability, sadness, um, all the things that men have to hide. Right. Right? Right. So this, it's not as if there's no cost for the white man in all of this. There is. It's just that the cost isn't as great as the cost is for everyone else. But most men know that part of growing up in American culture, and I think this is true around the world frankly is you have to put away certain parts of yourself because they're not seen as masculine right and we know this and this is you know this is the burden of women women politicians i mean hillary clinton being the the best example of this of someone who had to be more hawkish than any competitor she had in the primaries and then also when she ran against Donald Trump, right? And Donald Trump is the epitome of the white. Yeah, man. I mean, right. he's a caricature of it. Right, God's right. Mastery, possession, and, and control. It's, 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 all, it's comical, almost, frankly, which is why it's interesting. There's a, there's a writer, ta Coates, who I really like. He wrote about reparations. He's written about he's written a book called between the world and me which is really excellent and in that book he talks about and this is when i first heard this being white wanting to be not and he wasn't talking about black people he was talking about white people and how desperate they are to be white because and this is when i didn't have the terminology for it that's what he was talking about the desire for control and mastery and possession and that they they couldn't even see it right let alone be freed of it right and that's what he wanted it's like free yourselves and that's what this willie jennings wants for us too is we need to free ourselves of this burden it's so look at what it's doing yeah to us it's awful that's so good yeah yeah and um so he um the reason i brought him up is he talks about he, he talked about obama's the first black president and he wrote about that and he talked about um what did he say? He walked on ice for eight years and he never fell. <laughs> and it's such a great image, right? Because he couldn't make the smallest mistake. Oh, right. He well, just, he, there was no room for error. No, even the color of his suit was. Yeah, I mean the yeah. ridiculousness of it. It right? was totally. And then he, and then when Trump got elected, he um, wrote an article called "The First White President." And it sounds like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah. what he meant was yeah. the first white president who just was openly selling whiteness. Right. Vote for me. Make America great again is I am here to sell to you. We will not give up our whiteness. Never. Right. And right. it was like when I first I was like the first white president. And even when I read it, he's he's a really interesting writer. He's not he's direct sometimes, but he's also really indirect. And you feel like I'm not quite getting it. But then after reading Willie Jennings, I was like, oh, he's right. He's right. You know, these other guys had policies. <laughs> Mitt Romney had policies. George W. Bush had policies and ideas. They weren't just selling themselves as like, I'm the white guy 
that's going to make sure whiteness continues around here. Yeah. And say what you will. I know that people who are Trump supporters might say, well, that's not what he was doing. Oh, that's absolutely oh, what it he is. Was doing. And they bought into it whether they will admit it or not. It was exactly what he was selling, and they were buying. And they're still buying. They still can't give up. The, the one sound clip uh, of Donald Trump that makes me both sad and and at the same time um, yet makes me laugh is when he says, can we bring back Gone with the Wind, please? Can we bring back Gone with the Wind? It's not very coded, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, what? You know, and then you you will you will try and show that to people that you want to convince that this guy is not good for us. This guy is not good for us. And they are like, well, he just meant that we're canceling culture and that mm -hmm. Gone with the Wind was a good movie and look at all the stars. That's all he meant by that. No, that's not what he meant by that. And you know that's not what he meant by that. Right. But also, why... I guess what I want to say is by saying those types of things, by by talking about cancel culture, by talking about making make America great again, they're acknowledging that they see what's happening. It's just that they don't like it. They don't want to move forward. They don't want equal they don't want this kind of equality of the races and of the genders and of sexuality. And but on their terms, they 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 would say they want that, but on their terms, right? Which is yeah, right. Whiteness, that, right? We, right? We'll give you what you want on your terms. It's it's the plantation, right? Well, yeah, you know, if you there's some good uh, Netflix has a um, really good uh, series on now that Will Smith is um, producing and he's narrating called Amend, and it's about the Fourteenth Amendment. Okay, it's extraordinary. It's really well done, and um, and uh, one of the one of the things they keep bringing back is that um, what the South, primarily and and the North joined in, wanted to say is, look, we're, we're really gonna you're gonna be okay if you just behave. What we need you to do is behave, and this is what plantation owners said to their slaves as they were whipping them. And and by the way, here's another interesting part of that. Uh, prior to the emanci emancipation, slave owners didn't kill their slaves because they were profit. You didn't kill somebody who was worth $600 in an age where $600 was the equivalent of $6,000 or more. You didn't. Mm -hmm. But after the slaves were emancipated, then that's when uh, black Americans, called Negroes then, were murdered uh, and lynched and because now they weren't worth anything. There was oh, no profit. And it's that, so the death of black Americans, um, then ex-slaves, the, the killing of them happened after emancipation, right. not before. Before, they were whipped and beaten and raped and and sold off family sold all of that because they were property they were they were chattel right 
But after they were free, now, now they were didn't. There was no profit in keeping them alive. Yeah, so it's it's just. And, and then I'll say one more thing, and I'll turn it back to you. One in this in this Netflix special, a black woman turns to the camera and says, "Just be thankful. All we want is equality and not revenge." That's right. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was Doc Rivers, um, now the coach maybe of the Philadelphia Seventy Sixers, who articulated something that's been articulated many times, which is, how is it that Black Americans continue to engage this struggle mm-hmm. for civil rights, mm-hmm. having their lives matter as much as everybody else's in overwhelmingly nonviolent yeah, ways right. in this country. How? how we do say, they, how do we they say do the it? same thing about Palestinians. That's Josh. right. It's very it's similar. the exact same thing. I think that's actually how I came... I had to go there right, and yep. see it there yep. to then make the obvious correlation to here, to be honest. Yep. And uh, it's, such a, it's such a huge point. It's Plus, like we're now asking, you know what I mean? We're asking white America, we're asking so little of them. Yeah, right. And, they, and they're so mad. We're so mad. I'm, I'm not outside of that. I'm, we're asking so little. People are asking so little of you. Yeah. And you're you're angry to the point of violence. Yeah. Yep. And that tells you just how strong whiteness is right. as an ideology. Right. And we just never saw it as an ideology before, right? It right. was just right. it was just America. <laughs> well, there's two biblical stories that came to mind for me as I was preparing for this. The one is the the Exodus event, and in particular, the character of Pharaoh and his response to the growth of the Hebrew people. They're, they're, they have lots of babies. They're growing in numbers. They are becoming increasingly um, more of a demographic problem. And so he has a choice to make here. What can he do, right? Can he, and what does he choose to do? He chooses, first of all, he chooses to try and work the men harder so that they'll be so tired at night they won't want to have sex. I mean, it's laughable, but it's 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 really a great story. And that's what it is, a story. So they'll be so tired they won't want to have sex. Well, number one, he doesn't understand enough about sex. Number two, he doesn't understand enough about men and women and where they find energy when they're tired, mm-hmm. right? So they have more babies, not less. And so now he's got a bigger problem. He's got a demographic issue that's growing. second thing he does, as you know, is he says, we're going to kill the boys. We'll keep the girls because we can use them, Right. right? But we want to kill the men. And again, if you look at our history in the prison system, all the way back to post-slavery, we imprisoned black men for jaywalking and then made them work in the fields for nothing. Right. And that wasn't like an anomaly. 
That was the prison system in the South. That's right. And um, still we uh, imprison black men exponentially more than any other, right? Yep. So so this is Pharaoh's, I'm going to mastery, I'm going to possess them, and I'm going to control them. Well, mm-hmm. That's one story. And how does that work out? Not very well for Pharaoh, right? In the long run, it doesn't work out very well for Pharaoh. Right. The second story is the high priests during Holy Week. They have a problem. The problem is this guy who's marched into town and people are noticing him and maybe we're overplaying how big a deal Jesus was, but the fact is he was crucified. All of these are historical realities. That's not made up by the Bible or by anybody else. There was a Jesus. He was a threat. He was crucified. He was murdered. That happened. Well, what was the choice the high priest had to make there? They, they, they could have brought Jesus into the circle to try and understand what were the reforms he was trying to make. What were the issues that were bothering him so? And why was it that the crowds were drawn to it? Instead, they had to master. They, they already had mastery. They had the right answers. And they, um, they needed to control the situation. They brought him before Pilate, put before Pilate, this choice. Who do you want as your allies? You know, us mm-hmm. or him? Well, here's this, you know, lone, scraggly Jewish guy and these powerful high priests. Like Pilate's like, well, this is a no-brainer. I'll, yeah. If this yeah. will get rid of the problem, right? Yeah. If we kill him and it gets rid of this potential problem at this potential. But does that fit with what you're saying? Those two examples are not Josh. Yeah, it does. I, I think, um, he's using the term whiteness because he's, you know, working in this modern Western, uh, context. And he sees it as largely the rules of the game in education and everything else, certainly within the United States, but, increasingly around the world has been defined by white men right and so right. that's the right. that's the ideal but it's not as if that uh that ideology uh hasn't also been at play all over the world and and before there was a europe and and the united states it, it certainly was it's just that now i was thinking about even Look at um, China, for example, and look at the commodification of China because they've bought into capitalism. The mistreatment of their own people, right, who don't have, certainly don't have good workers' rights because they're just seen as cogs, you know, cogs in a system. So they're, they're possessed, and they're possessed for the economic gain of the government basically and for and for wealthy people and so even a, uh, even a culture fairly far removed f- 
from European culture, Western culture, has really been overtaken by a lot of these same uh, ideals, right? And that's because of globalization and, um, and capitalism. And so it's really, it's taking over the entire world bit by bit. Unfortunately, one of the ways it takes over the world is, is via Christianity, which we missionaries... We export. Yeah, we export. Because when we export Christianity, we export a lot of these same ideals mm-hmm. of the self-sufficient um, white man, right, who's possesses and controls um, the environment, right? And everything's commodified. I mean, we went to a lot of cultures that really were living... You know, some of them were impoverished, and and that was bad. But there was a sense in which there wasn't this huge separation between the natural world and them. And what we've done is increasingly created that separation that we created with all our technological advances and exported that to all around the world because largely because we went there and we saw all the potential in all these commodities that they had, all these resources that we had, they had, and we wanted them because that's how we saw the world, right. right? And now they increasingly, you know, around the world, have bought into that same idea of commodifying the natural world around them for economic gain. And we've made Christianity fit nicely into that ideology and it's um it's so hard to get people to recognize that and to want to change it but we have to start calling it what it is i think at least at a minimum i fear though that um it's almost an impossible task or at least it feels that way to me because I'm watching uh, African-American pastors embracing whiteness. I see Hispanic pastors embracing whiteness. For sure. And, All I mean, it's, it's instructive that um, the Black Lives Matter movement was not a church movement. It was, in fact, pastors stayed quiet. And this was been uh, been called out. Yeah, that black pastors stayed quiet. They didn't get involved. They didn't want to. Uh, they didn't. They wanted to work on growing their churches, planting new churches, doing all the things that is so much part of whiteness. Which yeah. is, we want to export. We want to make this commodity of of our brand of Christianity available to more and more people. So it was a young people's movement, mm-hmm. which is the only hope we have is that this next group of young people won't be like my generation who in the 60s were going to change all this. And then we found that we could better buy into it because then that allows us to be successful, which it did. Yeah, I think it's it's an important point because... I think what we're seeing is that 
the only places or, or primarily the places that are trying to opt out of whiteness are are not Christian spaces. Yeah, that's right. Christian yeah. spaces at this point have been entirely co-opted by whiteness. It's especially evident in white Christianity, right? And has been especially so or like has been on um, acute display during the Trump years. But I think it's I think it's an important point to say we're seeing that even when the opportunities arise within culture for black churches, Hispanic churches, you know, other non-white churches to opt out of whiteness or to at least dip their toes in these other movements that are quite powerful and big that they're hesitant to do so. And it just illustrates the power of, uh, of this ideology of, of whiteness. It's distressing because we work within, we've lived our whole lives in the confines of white Christianity and we're finding ourselves increasingly disillusioned, obviously, but also wondering if there's any hope yeah. for change within it. Because we care about it, and there's all sorts of people within it that we care about. We have tons of conversations. This is all anecdotal, of course, with people who, when we talk to them about these things, say, Oh man, it's true, right? It's hard to envision, as you said, it's hard to envision a large scale moving away from this ideology. You know, what Willie Jennings is saying is this is, this is how we do education. And right. he's speaking specifically about theological education, and I know this. I mean, I was reading him and I was just like, oh my word, it's so true. I mean, when we study the Bible and theology we're all about trying to master it and control it and know it. He says in there, um, yes. to know a thing is to possess a thing. Yeah. And that's, we just are churning out people with PhDs who think they have it all figured out. They're masters of this discipline, right? I mean, we even use that word for a degree, master of divinity, master of arts, Nobody's a master of anything, for God's sakes. And so the very leaders we need to help us leave this system are being created by the very system to embody the ideology of that system, of the self-sufficient white male who knows what he's doing and will get up there. Look what we do on Sunday mornings. All right. We, the, the, the pinnacle of the service is somebody gets up there and speaks with authority, right? As yeah. a sort of master yeah. in control of and possessing the knowledge we all need. So, I mean, the problem is so, so deep. It's so embedded. Well, I've been arguing, as you know, for a long, long time now about the problem of the Bible and our ability to control it. Is I don't think the problem is the Bible. I think the problem is we have the ability to control the Bible. We can pick and choose which passages we will embrace. We can pick and choose which one we will read in context and which one we will take literally. We do it all the time. 
We all do it. The reason we love the Bible, the reason the Bible is the center of our life, not the Holy Spirit, not God, not not uh, the wind that blows freely in your face or at your back or whatever, what I consider the Holy Spirit working to evolve the way we think about everything, everything. It's the Bible. Why is the Bible the center of church life? Not God. God is not the center. Not no. Jesus. Jesus is not the center of church life. No. We keep saying that. There's not even there's no even argument about this. Well, of course there, there is. Be. There, but there is. Most of the pastors I know say, "No, no, I just preach Jesus. I put Jesus at the center." No, you preach the Bible. You put the Bible at the center, and the reason you do that, my dear friend, and I'm with you, and I love you, is because you can control it. And you do control it, and you've, you've, you think you're the master of it, or that Paul was the master of it, or Peter, or any of the gospel writers, or any of the biblical writers were the masters of God's inspiration. None of them were. They or, were all trying to figure it out. There's always somebody, right, or Calvin, or Bart, Karl Bart, or some early Christian father, right? There's always somebody that they think had it all figured out, and they'll quote them for you um, on Sunday morning. Yeah, it's such a huge, it's such a huge problem, but we have to face it. Yeah, right. Well, and I think the hope is that even though, I mean, earlier, Josh, when you walked in when we were going to do this, you said, um, we have no power. We have no power. I've thought a lot about that. I, I've... I don't believe that's totally true. I mean, I get it. I mean, I mean, we talk about Karl Marx in the worst possible terms, and for good reason, his uh, ideology was used to, to to perpetuate some of the most horrible things. Right. So, but maybe so, not his fault, right? No, it wasn't his fault because he he used the word alienation. That was his word. Of course, wrote right. it in. Not our language, but that's the word he used, alienation. He was alienated from his, in his society. All the workers were that's alienated right. because they were working and, and it was the owners of factory that's and right. the politicians who were gaining. That's so right. he used the word alienation. Absolutely. We were alienated. I think a lot of us, and I even think people who, Ardently followed Donald Trump felt alienated as well. Yeah, they, they think, felt alienated from the system. That's right, and that's how you felt walking in here this morning. It's like we got no power, we have no influence, and I, I think of that story of the snowflakes. You know, right, the sparrow and the dove, where the uh, sparrow is talking to the dove, and the sparrow says, "Well, I was sitting on a branch." When the snow was following, I, falling, I was counting the snowflakes. And I got up to 3,174,066, and the next snowflake fell, and the branch broke. Mm. And the dove says, well, maybe there's just one voice lacking for there to be peace. Mm. Right? Yeah. So it's an accumulation of... So I think... The power we have is in not, in not giving up the fight. That's right. And But fighting fairly yep. and with humility. That's right. And and trying the best we can to love those that we find are so destructive. 
yep. and who are doing so much damage yep. in, in, in things we care about. Um, so what I'm saying is the feeling we have of alienation is real. Yep. But we still have our lives and our voices, and we can we can do this little thing to speak into it, and we should keep doing this. That's right. I've been using Cornell West's phrase, and he says, we have to root everything in honesty, integrity, decency, and service to yeah, others. exactly. And I love that. I do too. Hey, thanks so much for sticking with us. See you next week. <laughs>